From the High Center Studios of Messiah College and the Bucolic Convalescence Retreat of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome everyone to episode 22 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. The voice you heard at the top of the show, of course, was our producer, Drew Durley Hermeling, grad student in American history extraordinaire. So, Drew, give us another glimpse. You know, we have, we always are checking in on you, right? Give us another glimpse into the life of an early American history graduate student preparing for comps. <laughs> Oof. Well, you know, I get I get that question a lot from from loved ones, from family members. Uh, it's a hard one to answer. It's you know, main ingredients a healthy dose of dread. You know, I mean, obviously, it's this very stressful thing, this big final exam for all of graduate school. But uh, I mean, and the other part is it's also a kind of uninteresting answer because it, basically it is I read a lot. Yeah. When <laughs> is the when is the exam? Uh, well, right now, tenet- tentatively planned, not not officially planned, but tentatively planned for August. So, okay, I'm uh, going to put you on the spot. Okay, uh, you should be reading every day in preparation for the for the comps. What did you read this morning? Haha, I read two books this morning. Oh, so, he's got an answer. I, know, I thought yeah. you were going to say you played with Nilsa this morning <laughs> nope, and you didn't nope. get a chance to read. Although I have used that excuse. I don't, there's a reason I'm reading two books today. <laughs> 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 so, um. I'm working actually right now on my Latin American field, right? So I take exams in four different fields. And and although my main field is early uh, British colonial history, my um, one of my minor fields is Latin American. So uh, I'm reading James Sanders, The Vanguard of the Atlantic World, Creating Modernity, Nation, and Democracy in 19th Century Latin America, and Rixa Lasso's Myths of Harmony, Race and Republicanism During the Age of Revolution, Columbia, 1795 to 1851. <laughs> I'm guessing, listeners, I'm guessing you're going to run out right away onto Amazon and buy buy copies of those two books. My father-in-law would, would give the advice, just wait for the movie. Yeah, <laughs> with, with my luck, with my luck, the authors of those books probably listen to the podcast. <laughs> I, oh, they're both fabulous books. They're both yeah. very well written. So, and this is, and these are, you have a field in Latin American history, right? Yeah, well, you know, part of how I think about my education is not just as doing the British colonies, the 13 colonies, but thinking in a more broad Atlantic way and seeing the ways in which the 13 colonies that we normally study were involved and connected to, say, the revolution in Haiti or what's going on uh, in revolutionary Latin America or what's even going on in, in Europe or in West Africa. So I think there's a hashtag, right? Ha- on Twitter, hashtag vast early America. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think Karen Wolf from the Omohundro Institute is behind that one. Absolutely. Uh, but definitely that's the way the field the field is moving. I don't know if I ever told you I did it. Maybe I said it even on the air. I did a Latin American uh, field some 25 years ago. Um, well, you never wouldn't... used it, never used it once. Um, never even taught a class on Latin America. That's kind of my idea is that, you know, as more of us teach in smaller institutions, institutions get smaller. It's, it, it is also helpful to be able to teach a number of different, different subjects. So, right, so right. I'm doing Latin America. I'm also doing French, uh, French colonial America good, as well. Good. So what about you? You must be busy with the end of the semester coming up. Yeah. You know, we have this 12 week semester in the spring at Messiah college. So there's, there's a lot less breathing room for the students between assignments. And that usually means for me, there are very little breaks 
from grading. One assignment comes after the other. So I just finished grading a stack of blue book exams, and now I'm bracing for a round of papers to grade before the exams start arriving again as we move towards uh, finals. So my students are writing on the narrative of Frederick Douglass in my U.S. survey class. My Pennsylvania history students are handing in their oral history projects. So yeah, I'm going to be spending a lot of time with blue books and papers and, and a lot of red ink. You know, when, you, when I think about it, Drew, I don't really think grading is very good for my health. I see what you did there. <laughs> that was a very nice transition into the topic of today's episode. Yeah, thanks, Drew. I hope, I'd hope you'd notice that, that move. That I picked slight, up. I is picked it a up. sleight of hand, maybe? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, and yes, in today's episode, we are going to try to provide some historical context to the healthcare debate. Indeed, healthcare has been a major political issue for the last couple of decades, but I think it's the Affordable Care Act, or what is commonly known as Obamacare, uh, really made it front and center, especially in this election, but also during the whole Obama administration. Yeah, absolutely. Just personally, it's one of the issues I'm most passionate about as a citizen, uh, and I, I think, you know, we, as everyone here knows, you know, we, my wife and I just had a baby, and and that really brings. The yeah. issue of healthcare at front and center. Um, one of the fun, and I put the word fun in scare quotes, parts of navigating medicine in this country is regardless of whether you are insured or not, you get the bill. You see how much your healthcare costs. Yeah, yeah. And as I can attest, a few nights in the hospital and a C-section are <laughs> astronomically expensive. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, we're very lucky. We, we, we have health insurance through, through my wife's employer. And so it, it was all covered. We didn't have to pay any of it. But, you know. I yeah. know what I would have had to pay if we didn't have that kind of insurance. So would, it's uh, it's not an issue I feel we can be blasé about. I mean, it really is. I mean, we could debate like what the issue is of of the contemporary political culture. I mean, healthcare has to be at the top, if not very near the top. It's funny, you know. I'm teaching in my U.S. survey class. I'm teaching the the early 19th century. You know, when issues the issues that drove campaigns are like the annexation of Texas mm-hmm. or the uh, or the National Bank right? yeah. <laughs> and these kinds of things. But you know, healthcare obviously is 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 sort of right up there. Well, I mean, and it's very important to me as a as a graduate student, as someone who is in school and does these part time things like sure. working on this podcast. You know, health insurance is uh, would be very difficult for me were I not married to someone who yeah. who who received good uh, good family family health insurance. One of these days, we are going to uh, you know have everybody here on full time salary at the Way from Privilege Home Podcast. Go. Everyone's going to have health care. Right, but we, we're going to have to raise a lot more money if we want to do that. Well, speaking of, before we get to the fun part, we need to make sure to give our thanks to our generous supporters. That's right. As always, our episode today is brought to you by the generous donations of Ron Schooler and Lisa DeGuardi, along with our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. If you're curious about what that business is all about, check out our previous episode, episode 21, in which we have Dr. Peggy Jennings on the show to talk about her business. If you want to join our cloud of support, simply head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support. It's that simple. Drew needs healthcare. I need healthcare. (laughs) We are always looking for more partners for this venture. And as always, a retweet or a review on your podcatcher of choice is a great way to get the word out about what we're doing here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Now, let's get to business. Right. From what I understand, you are very well acquainted with today's guest. That's right. Our guest today is Nancy Toms of the State University of New York at Stony Brook. She is the author of the fabulous new book, relatively new book, 2016, 
Remaking the American Patient, How Madison Avenue and Modern Medicine Turned Patients into Consumers. Just last month, her book was awarded the prestigious Bancroft Prize. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this prize, this is the highest honor a book can receive in the field of American history. I met Nancy 23 years ago when I walked into her writing and research seminar as a first-year PhD student in history at Stony Brook. And though I was an early American historian and she was working in the history of medicine, I think she was writing her book, The Gospel of Germs, at that time. She was always and always has been a cheerleader for my work. So I was thrilled when she agreed to serve as a, as a member of my dissertation committee. You know, ba- thinking back to that seminar, I remember it well. Amy Bass, who you may remember from one of our previous episodes when we talked about uh, sports, uh, she was in that seminar Though Nancy probably doesn't remember, I wrote a paper on the 18th century evangelical educator Eliezer Wheelock. Some of you know him as the founder of Dartmouth College, which I eventually got published. It was actually the first thing I published in in the field of early American history. And then I took another seminar, writing seminar with Nancy, and there I wrote the paper that eventually turned into my dissertation on religion in the colony of West Jersey. Nancy and I have exchanged a few emails over the years, but I think this will be the first time we've actually talked since my dissertation defense. So when she when she comes on, I'm going to kid her. You know, last time I think we we actually talked, it was Nancy who was asking me the questions. Right now, I get a chance to ask her the yeah. questions. I think I'll give her a hard time about that when she comes on. Yeah, turnabout is fair play, I guess. Right. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm honestly, John, I'm looking forward to this interview as well. I'm especially interested. I um, I actually TA'd for a History of Modern Medicine class that primarily served undergraduate pre-med students. Oh, is that right? Yeah. They, you know, so Lehigh University is a, a pretty liberal arts-focused institution, so all of these pre-med students have to take a humanities yeah. class. So this one was, like, was, was their go-to class, History of Modern Medicine. And so to keep the uh, non-history students interested, the prof definitely pushed some of the more gruesome aspects of yeah, medical history. Yeah. And I'm thinking of body snatchers yeah. and enlightenment era surgical theaters. So while medical history definitely falls outside of my expertise as well, it was a fun course to be a part of. And in fact, uh, I actually, I think my wife has said that that was one of her favorite parts of my graduate education. As I'm sure you know, when we bring our work home, it can often be pretty dull for the non-history nerd, but everyone loves a gory hospital story. Yeah. Yeah. But before we welcome Nancy, it's time for your story, John. I am not a historian of healthcare, nor do I teach courses in the history of medicine, disease, or public health. The history of these subjects are important and have been even more important in the last several decades as healthcare has become more and more politicized in the wake of the Affordable Care Act. There is much good scholarship in these fields, and if historians continue to be drawn to writing about topics with contemporary relevance, the scholarship is going to get even better. But unfortunately, most of the scholarship on medicine, disease, and healthcare rarely makes much of a dent in the standard narratives of the United States presented in history textbooks or in the way we teach American history in our schools and colleges. Sickness and healthcare, while deeply connected to things like race, class, gender, the economy, religion, and politics, often transcend these categories. Everyone gets sick. These are universal issues, things that we all have to deal with as human beings. It is thus odd that we don't pay more attention to them when we tell the story of the American past and the people who lived through that past.
The history of medicine, illness, and healthcare often make cameo appearances in the stories about the American past. For example, they might appear for the first time in a lecture or chapter on how Native Americans were wiped out by disease. They might come up again when we talk about camp life during the Civil War. In modern America, we pay limited attention to them when we talk about the reforms of the Progressive Era. Then we do not mention them again until we get to the post-war period and start preparing lectures on Medicare and Medicaid, abortion and women's reproductive health, or the AIDS crisis. I must admit that I am guilty of this. Since I teach subject matter from before the Civil War, I spend a lot of time talking about how disease devastated Native American populations well before the arrival of European settlements in the New World. But very early in my career at Messiah College, I began to realize that I needed to do more with the history of health and medicine. Messiah College has a very vibrant nursing program, and since we are committed to offering pre-professional students a full liberal arts curriculum in addition to their medical training, I got a lot of nurses who started taking my United States History Survey course. In order to make history relevant to these students, I decided to devote a day of my course to the viewing of A Midwife's Tale, a documentary film based on Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's prize-winning book about the late 18th century New England midwife Martha Ballard. The story of Martha Ballard, as told so brilliantly by Ulrich, both in the book and in the film, sheds light on a healthcare system that is very different from our own. We learn from Ballard's late 18th century world on the main frontier that healthcare was much more communal and local than it is today. This was especially the case with women's health care. Using Ballard's diary, Ulrich tells the story of a midwife who was at the center of a network of women existing outside of the professional world of men. The 50-year-old Ballard travels through the snow on horseback, crossing rivers to get to her patients. She sleeps in their houses and listens to their concerns. She not only delivers babies, but nurses sick women back to health. She is present during life and during death. There is a revealing scene in the film when one of Martha's patients is in labor and demands that the women in the room call for the quote-unquote new doctor. They were intimidated, Ballard writes in her diary. They called Dr. Page, who gave my patient 20 drops of laudanum, which put her in such a stupor that her pains which were regular and promising, stopped until near night. At this point in the film, Ulrich's voice enters the narrative. The new physician in town was Dr. Benjamin Page, and he seemed determined to engage in the practice of obstetrics. Not to come in in an emergency, as an older physician might have done, but really to be part of normal deliveries. From Martha's point of view, Page was not only an upstart, he was a bungler. Eventually, the doctor left, the opium wore off, and Martha delivered the baby. By the way, Martha received 12 shillings, quote-unquote, as a reward. The story of Dr. Page represents an early manifestation of the changes that would soon engulf the practice of medicine. It presented a shift in how health care would be delivered, who would deliver it, and the place in which it was delivered. Today's guest on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, historian Nancy Toms, describes this shift in her book, Remaking the American Patient. She writes, 
Domestic medicine was associated with the 19th century equivalent of Dr. Mom. Learning how to treat symptoms and nurse the sick formed part of what American mothers taught their daughters about how to run a home. In dooryard gardens, women cultivated plants prized for their healing qualities, mixing old-world standbys such as angelica, chamomile, feverfew, and foxglove with new-world additions such as bee balm, golden seal, and American pennyroyal. They shared favorite recipes for homemade pain relievers, fever reducers, wound cleansers, and bowel openers, and traded advice about managing specific illnesses as well as the dangers of childbirth, unquote. By the end of Martha's life, professional doctors trained in medical schools were taking medicine beyond local lore by publishing home health manuals with titles such as the poor man's friend in the hours of affliction, pain, and sickness. States formed medical societies and came together in 1847 to form the American Medical Association that provided codes of professional ethics for doctors and defined who qualified as a quote-unquote good physician. The women's world of healthcare, Martha Ballard's world, would certainly persist, but public debates about the subject had now entered a professional culture dominated by men. And as Tom's notes, this world was directly tied to the rise of American consumer capitalism. Our guest today is Nancy Toms. In addition to being on John Fia's dissertation committee, Toms is a distinguished professor of history at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Most of her scholarly work focuses on the intersection between expert knowledge and popular understandings of the body and disease. She's the author of several books, including The Gospel of Germs, Men, Women, and the Microbe in American Life, published with Harvard University Press in 1998, and most recently, the Bancroft Prize-winning Remaking the American Patient, How Madison Avenue and Modern Medicine Turned Patients into Consumers, published in 2016, with the University of North Carolina Press. She is also the creator of Medicine and Madison Avenue, a website devoted to the history of health-related advertising. We are here with Nancy Toms, a distinguished professor of history at the State University of New York at Stony Brook and the author of the Bancroft Prize-winning book, Remaking the American Patient, How Madison Avenue and Modern Medicine Turned Patients into Consumers. Nancy, welcome to the program. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And we were joking before we came on that I think the last time we spoke to one another, we've we've you know exchanged some emails here and there, but we spoke to one another. Last time we spoke to another, you were asking me the questions at my dissertation defense. Yes, so very it, true. It, it's been a while. Tell us, Nancy. Some of you, some of us, uh, some of our listeners may not know uh, your work, uh, may not be familiar with with some of your scholarship and your writing. Uh, you are a history of medicine, a social historian, historian of women and gender. Um, how does making the American patient sort of fit into your your entire kind of scholarly career and your interest in in these subjects? Um, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this field and, you know, sort of your work in this field up until this point. Well, when I went to graduate school, I had no idea there was such a field as the history of medicine. I went to study women in the family, um, but I got a job. Uh, I, there was no money for me to have a TA the first year, so I got a job 
in the archives of the Pennsylvania Hospital, uh, the, the oldest hospital, and as a colonial historian, Benjamin Raj, yeah. Benjamin Franklin. Um, and I tell you, I was hooked from the minute I walked into that building and started messing around with those old books and those old hospital records. I was a goner. Wow. Uh, but what I liked about it always was the, more the patient side. Um, I, it's not that I wasn't interested in what the doctor had to think, but I was fascinated by the way doctors and patients interacted. So my first book was about a mental hospital and how mm -hmm. doctors and patients interacted in that institution. And then my second single author book was uh, about the popularization of the germ theory of disease. So how did ordinary people like you and me come to believe in the existence of these invisible agents that could, you know, kill us? Right. Um, and how did we have to change our lives to avoid germs? And it was that book that got me interested in the role of advertising because I discovered, much to my surprise, that even before doctors accepted the germ theory as fact, there were all these entrepreneurs out there pitching uh, devices for your toilet or right. Listerine uh, to kill germs. So I started thinking, wow, this is really, this is a side of the history of medicine we haven't paid much attention to. The commercial side, entrepreneurial side, the role of advertising. And so after I finished the germ book, I thought, oh, let me do this just kind of short, fun book about <laughs> advertising and health. Right. Uh, I did a website for with Duke University uh, Medicine and Madison Avenue, where we looked at how doctors were portrayed in ads. And that's really where I thought I was headed with the remaking the American patient. But a couple of years into it, uh, I just started getting dragged out of the fun stuff into the hard part. Uh, when I would go to talk about ads, my audience wanted to hear about health insurance. They wanted to hear about prescription drug advertising. They wanted to hear about bills. So almost against my will, I got dragged more and more into the complicated politics of healthcare in our country over the last century. And it took me 15 long years to come up with something new to say about that. Um, and, and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. I have to say, this is the least favorite uh, of the books I've written. Is that I had right? Yeah most miserable time with this. I just felt like, wow, there's something here. I want to get my hands around it, but uh, it was hard. Yeah. Um, and, and definitely timely too. How much was the, how much was all the debates about, uh, about healthcare, you know, in a coach with, with the Affordable Care Act and so forth? How much did that kind of drive you to, to keep going? Well, it drove me, but it also tortured me. Sure. And I can tell you when I was in the final stages of writing, um, I was 
hysterical thinking the Supreme Court was going to, it was the that last challenge, and that I was going to have to rewrite at yeah. least the introduction and the conclusion. I remember, and we were on a tight deadline, I remember sending a note to my editor at Carolina and saying, I hate to tell you this, but if they rule against the Affordable Care Act, we're, <laughs> I'm going to need some more time. And yeah. my, my husband was working on the internet, and he started yelling, you're safe, you're safe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, yeah. But let me tell you the irony then, I was safe then, but the irony of at the precise time I got the bankrupt, that the Affordable Care Act was once again uh, under attack right. and, uh, you know, the the repeal move failed uh, a couple of weeks ago, right. but who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. So, so again, uh, the, the timeliness is, is great. And, and for those of you out there listening who, you know, want some historical perspective on these contemporary debates, um, you know, remaking the American patient is the place to go. We'll talk a little bit more about that here uh, in a few minutes. Let's get into the kind of the, the kind of argument of the of the book here. Um, and, and you lay out in making the American patient this idea that there's a common misconception that the consumer mindset that we have, you call it medical consumerism, uh, really didn't come about, uh, or, or most people think it came about, you know, in the 1970s or so, but your book challenges this argument. You know, tell us, tell us sort of how you're framing the book against the arguments made by, say, other historians, or perhaps uh, uh, the popular um, perception of when we became uh, so consumer-driven in our healthcare choices. When I first started working on the project, I, too, assumed it was the 1970s and in particular the second wave feminism, the women's health movement, that that's when consumerism really got on the American radar screen. Much to my surprise, when I started going back and looking for patient pushback around the shape of healthcare, I found it going way, way back. I mean, it's it's even there in the 1800s. But what really surprised me was how much was going on in the 1920s and 1930s. Essentially, the shape of our healthcare system comes into focus roughly from 1880 to 1920. Mm -hmm. And by that shape, I mean the idea of a carefully regulated medical profession where you have uh, regular physicians, and by that I mean the ancestors of today's biomedicine, the folks you go to see right. when when you go to the hospital, so uh, that they really come into their own during the progressive period and get an enormous amount of control over the educating and licensing of American doctors. They don't have that control before the 1880s. Right. And this is this free market, right, that you're talking about prior to 1880, right? This this shift from a kind of free market medicine to uh, a more progressive regulated medicine, right? 
Yes. So the free market before the 1880s, basically, if you or I wanted to go out and say, hi, I'm a doctor, I can treat your cancer, you could do it. If you wanted to peddle uh, a nostrum, if you wanted to say, take this snake oil remedy and you your cancer will be cured, you could say that there were no governmental bodies going around and and policing. Um, would that the American Medical Association, which is founded in 1847, would have loved to have been able to do that, but they couldn't. Too much pushback, too much competition from domestic healers. You had uh, midwives, uh, you had women healers doing the majority of everyday care. And then in terms of doctors, you know, in the 1800s, you could get a botanical doctor, you could get a Thompsonian, uh, uh, homeopathy becomes a very popular uh, challenge. So basically, the the idea of uh, consumers being able to choose anything they wanted, you only have that in the 1800s. That freedom starts to get shut down during the progressive period because of arguments that that freedom is too dangerous. It coincides with mainstream doctors getting more uh, powerful treatments, diagnostic methods that really work at a higher level. So x-rays, surgery, uh, uh, aseptic surgery, All of a sudden, the regular docs have something that their competition doesn't. Right. And that becomes part or the foundation for a new system of licensing and education tied up with that, that gives the mainstream medical profession enormous power. Yeah. So they basically are setting the rules without anybody looking over their shoulder. If you look at the drugstore side you have a similar kind of movement to tighten up on what drugs can be sold and what can be in them, culminating in uh, 1906 with the Pure Food and Drugs Act. So you get, you know, the predecessor of today's Food and Drug Administration. So if you believe the reformers, all the problems in in, in terms of safety and Uh, quality of care are solved by these new forms of regulation. But as I found out, the problems were not solved. That new system of medical regulation, there were still plenty of physicians who were being poorly trained and not supervised in what they were doing. And also the fee system is just really hard to figure out, not very consistent. And then on the drugstore side, what that 1906 law did, it was a lot less than the public thought. Um, they assumed that drugs were safe in every respect, when in fact, what that early FDA regulation could do was really, really limited. It was it was about what was on the label and making sure that if there were one of these uh, dangerous ingredients, you had to put it on the label. But everything else was still up for grabs. So right. now, now you, you, most of us think 
you know, we think of progressive era reforms, right? Especially when it comes to food and drugs. And we think, you know, all good, right? You know, uh, you know, at least that's what we're conditioned to believe, right? The regulations are good. It helps, uh, it helps the consumer and so forth. Um, but you started touching on this. Are these kinds of things that you're mentioning now, the kind of hazards, right? You talk about the hazards of this, of these progressive changes. Um, is that what you have in mind? You know, the, the things you just spoke about, you know, what are those hazards? The idea of progressive era drug regulation is really oversold. Yeah. And the degree to which it really is able to eliminate uh, dangers in the common medicines that people are taking. So what the new drug regulations do is weed out the very worst offenders. But they, it can't guarantee that every remedy that's being sold in the drugstore is really safe or labeled correctly or is going to fulfill the advertising hype surrounding right. it. Okay. So by the, the as as this world of of uh, remedies, all of them these drugstore remedies are being very heavily advertised, especially after World War I, the rise of a much more aggressive advertising culture where you have national brands, national marketing plans, ads everywhere, huge upsurge. This is kind of the, you know, the golden age of modern advertising right. comes in uh, in the 1920s and 1930s. People going to buy these products, increasingly uh, the more discriminating of them are beginning to realize that there is a lot of hype going on. And they start to get worried about the advertising claims and the safety of the, the drugs that they're taking. So the, the uh, consumer movement in this time period that, that uh, uh, starts to look at all kinds of consumer goods, uh, focuses in on drugstores as a big part of what the modern educated American needs to be wary of. So your basic idea of a health consumer starts with the drugstore and all the variety of of crazy stuff that's in there that you need to learn to read ads carefully and not believe everything you hear. What I saw happening that I didn't expect is that that mindset of challenging what a drug ad was saying and what the drugstore was giving you started to bleed over into the doctor's office. So if you were starting to think critically about an ad and a treatment for, say, an over-the-counter drug, then you would go to the doctor. And it was like this little voice was also starting to say, well, do I know that this treatment that my doctor is recommending for me is the best treatment? Right. Or specialism starts. So have I gone to the right doctor? My stomach's upset. Should I be seeing my my family doctor? Should I go to a specialist? And... uh, There's so much freedom in American medical practice in this time period that you have a lot of card-carrying, well-credentialed physicians who are talking 
different treatments. I mean, within the same licensed AMA, they're all AMA card right. carrying. They're not recommending the same lines of treatment. So that kind of weariness that starts with over-the-counter drugs starts to infect the doctor's office as well. So this is... um. So what you're trying to argue is this idea of like the medical consumer, right? You go out and get a second opinion. You read up on the, even with the internet, right? You read up on the internet. So yes. before, before WebMD and these kinds of things, uh, this stuff is going on well before that. People are starting to question their, uh, their, their uh, physicians and, and their, uh, you know, the, the medical advice they're getting in the doctor's office. Uh, absolutely. And in pointing that out, I really was going against the usual story, right. because most of what you read about the rise of 20th century American medicine supposes a very passive patient right. from right. 1900 to 1970. No pushback, no nothing. Right. Right. It's all, we're also in awe of the wonders of modern medicine that no patient is going to be snippy with their physician boy, is that yeah. wrong. Yeah. Uh, now, I will qualify, because, and I try to be very careful in the book, these snippy people <laughs> that I'm talking about were not a, 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 a cross-section of average Americans. They tended to be white, right. middle-class professionals yeah. who had, uh, many of them had a college education when they would go into a doctor's office and be treated as a child by the physician, where uh, not as an adult, but expected to just blindly accept the doctor's dictum, not ask questions, right. and then pay a whoppingly big bill with no explanation, um, these folks started to say, I don't think so. Yeah. And really uh, push back and go out and start writing advice literature for their fellow patients saying, you know, you folks need to wise up. Yeah. You need to start being a more informed patient before you walk in that door. Because if you don't, you could end up paying for drugs that don't work, paying for surgeries you don't need. So this kind of, of, uh, watchdog, I call it the patient as watchdog yeah. mentality. You can see uh, in the starting in the late 1920s into the 1930s. I was amazed at that. Yeah, I'm yeah. still amazed at the fact that I I can find articles from the 1930s that if you change a few terms, you could hand out today still would be the kind of advice that we're given about yeah. how to make sure we get good health care. How crazy yeah, is that? That's amazing. So there's, you know, that's fascinating too. the sort of class and gender or class and, and race uh, mm -hmm. dimensions, yes. yep. dimensions that play into the list. You know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the son of kind of working class people who were very much, you know, it, you know, a third generation sort of, you know, from immigrants and, and, you know, we were, we, I was always brought up, Drew, to, to think, um, you know, you just tell the doctor you do what the doctor tells you to do, right? You know, I mean, you don't, you know, challenge this. You know, we didn't have the education to be able to, yeah. you know, to do that. I, I, I have to say I'm from a rural Southern family. Yeah. I did not learn any of this 
as yeah. a child. My parents were very deferential right. to our family doctor, but also uh, thinking about our family doctor in the context of what I have learned in this book, I realize how unusual he was. Yes. He was fighting the trend toward specialization, right. uh, treated the whole patient in a way that, uh, you know, essentially is very, very hard to find now. Yeah. Uh, but absolutely, I, I, I often tell my my uh, graduate students, this interest of mine does not come out of my own personal background. Right. And I think Southerners probably were even slower to catch up on this mindset. Right. But John, where I really get people saying, oh, but of course, or when I talk to urban uh People who were raised in more middle-class families. I remember talking to uh, this famous philosopher about what I was doing, and she said, oh, yes, in my family, we always knew yeah. that the doctor was going to bill as much as possible and that we had to watch out for that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fascinating because my wife is actually very much raised in a kind of middle-class, Midwestern, educated, Protestant household. And, you know, when I come back from a, just a trip to my family physician, you know, she's like, did you do this? Did you ask him this? Yes. Did you, you know, yes. and, and my, right. my mentality is more, you know, he told me to take this and do this, so I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yes. I mean, yes. you know, obviously I've, I've, I, uh, you know, as I've sort of, you know, gotten educated and so forth, that's changed a little bit, but that's the, that's the def always been the default position for me, yes. right? Is, is yes. to listen. Yeah. Let's, let's move ahead yeah. um, here. Uh, af so after World War II then, right? Um, yes. Americans start to settle you call on what you call a free enterprise healthcare system. Um, what were the results then of the sort of more capitalist approach uh, to healthcare? There's some debates, uh, you know, there's there's these debates about socialized healthcare, socialized medicine, but they don't really win the day, and the sort of free market wins out. Um, you know, what what are the what are the consequences of that for for the patient? So definitely, the 1930s is a huge point of no return when the idea of including some kind of healthcare benefit and social security gets nixed because Roosevelt is scared of the AMA. He had good reason yeah, to yeah. be, I'm afraid. What happens in this country compared to other capitalist democracies around the same time is we develop only a private employer-based insurance system. So you see starting in the 1930s and then accelerating into the 1950s, if you are a certain kind of worker, if you're an executive with IBM or you're a union worker with IBM or some other really big national company, mm -hmm. you are going to start getting a package of health benefits as part of your employment. Right. Now in the 50s, this covered primarily hospital care. If you got yeah. really sick, had to go to the hospital. The kind of insurance that we invested in as a nation in the 1950s was something called indemnity insurance. Mm -hmm. It basically means whatever bill your hospital or doctor submits, the insurer pays off on that. Right. So there's no bargaining over costs. There's no um, there's no double checking. Is this a fair 
is this what everybody is charging? It's just if you submit the bill, the insurance company is going to pay it. When this system starts to spread in the 1950s, inevitably, it incentivizes hospitals and doctors to deliver more care mm-hmm. in hospitals and to charge more for it. They, there's this body of insured people. Why not? Uh, and, and it's easy to justify that, to say it really would be better if you went to the hospital and had this or that procedure done there. Um, but it starts this inflationary uh, spiral. The costs for care start to go up because they're pegged to the insured people. Mm-hmm. What happens to old people who are no longer uh, employed by anyone? Well, they can't afford their health care. And what happens to the huge number of workers who don't belong to unions that get them these health care plans? You have this growing problem, very apparent by the late 1950s, of uh, uh, gaps that we have this private insurance system based on employment, but we have no other safety net. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a conservative Republican, you say, oh, yes, there's a safety net charity. Private charity should take care of those old people or children should take care of their parents. Poor people, if they're worthy, the church will help them, their lodge will help them. But it's their problem. You definitely don't want government getting involved. This is Ronald Reagan talking. Uh, (laughs) uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, one of his breakthroughs as a politician was in uh, working for the American Medical Association to defeat Medicare. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was his great passion Mm -hmm. uh, when he was making the transition from actor to uh, politician. So the, you know, the pushback is there is no role for, or it's not pushback. The argument at this point is there is no role for government in providing care for these folks who are left out of this new expanding system. Right. Other countries have uh, mixed systems where they have employer base, but then they have public programs that kind of pick up everyone else. Other countries in this time period start to move toward a single payer system where government is basically the the umbrella for um, providing the health care like the National Health Service in right. England, right. you know, gets takes on its modern form in the 1950s, not in the United States. We are absolutely committed to this idea of free enterprise, meaning no government involvement in the provision of medical care. That becomes a huge point for political debate. John F. Kennedy gets elected by a hair in 1960, in large part by running on the problem of the elderly and their lack of health care. He comes in wanting to set up a public program and and eventually the it, it's not just care for the elderly but also care for low income people that get bundled together there's a huge battle over that in the early 1960s and it's really not until kennedy gets assassinated 
that um, you get all these Democrats elected to Congress and Johnson is able on the martyred president's uh, name to bulldoze the public option of Medicare and Medicaid to get that bulldozed through Congress. But he does it by basically compromising on the cost issue. Medicare and Medicaid are set up on that same indemnity principle. Whatever the hospital and the doctor charges, that's what they're going to get paid. There's this famous story about one of uh, Johnson's advisors saying, you know, boss, this is going to cost a lot of money. (laughs) And he's like, well, we'll worry about that later. Let's just get it going. Yeah. And then, of course, this is also, you know, you mentioned Reagan. Reagan's like on the stump for Goldwater right about this time, too. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's we, we have we have only have a few more a little time left. I want to ask a couple more questions. Drew, you, you wanted to ask a question. Yeah. Well, you end the book with a section titled A Consumer's Revolution. Right. And I'm raising my voice there to indicate that yes. it has, there's a question yes. mark at the end. So um, why has or first of all, why the question mark and why has the consumer revolution in healthcare fallen so short of its goals? It's fallen short of its goals because, in fact, it's not a consumer driven revolution. Now, I say that even though you will find politicians saying what they are advocating for is more consumer-driven healthcare, but uh, essentially they're talking about healthcare that is designed to uh, maximize the profit-taking of all the major players in healthcare today, from hospitals to physician groups to uh, device makers to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, In their their, uh, policy-making actual patient-consumers have a very limited role. So it's all these groups saying, yes, we're taking really good care of you, when in fact, what they're taking care of are their own special interests. Now, in some cases, their special interests do produce positives for your average American patient. But if you look at the overall shape of our healthcare system, the duplication, the waste, the lack of coordination, that is not what American patients wanted. It's not what they asked for. So in that sense, the consumer revolution, it's been for other people's benefits and not enough for patients as a whole. Now you, you end the book, Nancy, you, you, you're you're always the historian through the book, but in the conclusion, you you sort of address some of the contemporary issues that we have here uh, in our country today related uh, to healthcare. Let me just quote um, a question that you ask on page four twenty one. What does the <laughs> what does the history told here suggest about how to go forward? Uh, as the final as the final question here, uh, tell <laughs> us tell us you know how. What, how does history speak to the present? How does history speak to how we go forward uh, in these in these uh, healthcare debates, which you know these divisive healthcare debates that we're going through uh, today? Um, what do we learn? How does the past uh, inform the present in this case? So the history of America, American medicine is a push pull between pro market and uh, anti market forces. I come down on the side of having more market forces 
in medicine is not going to improve things for patients. Mm -hmm. Essentially, medicine is an asymmetrical relationship. The doctor has more knowledge and more power than the patient. And you are not going to improve the medical system by pretending otherwise and saying that, oh, just have these new health insurance plans that make people uh, pay more for um, their premiums or make sure they have a $5,000 deductible before Mm -hmm. they'll even go to the doctor. We have mountains of study that suggest those kinds of plans do not work well because what happens is the person doesn't go to the doctor until it's too late. So I am definitely in favor of moving the needle back toward the public side. Uh, What the Affordable Care Act didn't have was a public option that had to be taken out, should be put back in there. Um, I am not of the of the optimistic view that we're ever going to get to a single payer system in this country, mm-hmm. not unless you eliminate all the insurance companies, which is never going to happen. They don't want to go. Um, but our pathway forward is realizing that we are going to we are a mixed system and we have to keep the public side strong and we need to get the people left out covered. And in that respect, I think the direction that the Trump administration is taking us absolutely wrong. Um, I, I'm not sure they know what direction they're taking, but <laughs> the kinds of plans um, that were put forth under the name of Trump care um, are just hair raising. Um, that's not the direction to go. There, there seems to be, just to follow up on that, there seems to be in your book, in your conclusions especially, uh, you know, this sort of questioning of, of new and improved, right? And you actually, you actually, in a sense, I don't think without being, I don't think you're being nostalgic here. You're, you're kind of calling back to the history and almost suggesting um, maybe there were some things about the old way of doing healthcare yes. uh, that, that we need to get back to. Could you just speak yes. to that sort of to wrap things up? If there were some way to get back to a medical system before doctors were incentivized to think in terms of procedures and processes and to reward doctors who practice holistic medicine, to reward them for talking to their patients, to reward them for coordinating their patients' care, that would be fabulous. Yeah. In a way, that would be the kind of health care that I got from my family doctor, you know, back in the dark ages. Uh, <laughs> that that our, you know, what's happened since the 1970s have made that have made that kind of physician a disappearing species. So whatever we can do to get back to that, I would be really happy. Great. We have been talking to Nancy Tom. She is the author of the Bancroft Prize winning uh, history, Remaking the American Patient, How Madison Avenue and Modern Medicine Turned Patients into Consumers. This has been a pleasure, Nancy. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you. Well, as I always say, Drew, another great interview with Nancy. Her book, Remaking the American Patient, really opened my eyes to so much about our current healthcare debate. I really read it. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a scholar of American history, but, but you know, I, I don't specialize in this stuff. So it was really revealing to me. I mean, I wish we had another hour to talk to her. Yeah, although I think I would be tempted if we had more time to 
to start grilling her about you as a graduate student, seeing how much <laughs> seeing how much you tease me for being a graduate student. I would like to get a glimpse into into John Fia, the graduate student. That's what right. kind of tweets you'd be tweeting? Well, you'll have to, you know, you'll have to to grill uh, Nancy. A little well, more I have her email that. address now. So. I'm just I'm just curious, uh, Drew. Are you? Um, you know, we were talking with Nancy about, you know, the 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 generate the class and the and the. Um, the race uh, dimensions of this kind of medical consumerism. But I wonder if there's like a generational thing. I mean, are you, do you see yourself as a healthcare consumer? Like, do you, are you the pe- person who kind of wants to hold your doctor accountable? Not, I, I would say no. I, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this question and trying to come up with a good answer. I will say though, I, I've recently become one. And part of that has to do with a, a particular health issue. I'm not, I'm not afraid to embarrass myself now. I, I am a very loud snorer. Yeah. And and as, as someone who is happily married in all other ways, I, I I know my wife would like me to be less of one, and so I I, I pursued that angle, uh, and you know and that got me for the first time into a number. Of, you know, I was referred to a specialist, an ear, nose, and throat doctor, who yeah. then looked around and 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 then recommended that I go to a sleep specialist. And, w- and what's really interesting about all of this is despite the fact that the sleep specialist commented on how remarkably loud I was as I snored, the, um, the, the, the ear, nose, and throat specialist you know, looking at my throat said, well, you've just got a very crowded throat. There's really nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and they bo- all recommended that I get one of those, those CPAP machines. Yep. Um, my insurance wouldn't cover it. Really? So, huh. so I can't get one. So, so yeah. you know, it... it, it it's 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 it is it was very interesting hearing Nancy talk about yeah. talk about all of that within the context of that that what has been a pretty recent experience. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I tend like I said to Nancy, I tend to I tend to still be old school. You know, I I sort of do what the doctor says. I think part of that is just I've been blessed with with good health. Yeah, right? there haven't been situations where I've really had to kind of dig in and right and you know try to find a different kind of alternative medicine or mm-hmm. or whatever. So. uh Hopefully you learned a great deal about um, the the healthcare debate and we're able to put it in historical context here uh, as we talk to Nancy Toms. Go out and get her book, Remaking the American Patient. Uh, it's a long book. It's a good book. It's one that you should, you know, if you're really interested in getting at the the, the historical roots uh, and the, the historical development of healthcare in the United States to make you a more informed citizen and more conversant on what's going on in the public square today as we debate this issue, uh, definitely get your hands on on her book. Uh, well, Drew, I guess that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Uh, I hope that you learned a lot from our episode today. Uh, I know we sure did. Uh, and as always, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. This episode is brought to you through the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, and our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We are also so thankful for the support of Edie Overdune. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the High Center on campus at Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Nancy Toms. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermeling, and your host, as always, is John Fia.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.